Welcome and hey, Merry Christmas too. Two days, no, three days, Monday, Tuesday, three days before the big day. I hope that your, your celebration is, uh, well, it's coming. I hope that you're, you're ready for that. And we're just glad you're here with us this morning. And again, we do have our Tuesday night Christmas Eve service. We'd love to have you come out and join us there. Uh, would you open? Yeah, yeah. Woo, all right. Would you open with me uh, to John chapter 1? Go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 1. Or if you uh, uh, need a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. So feel free to grab a hard copy there and follow along with us as we continue our Advent series, opening up God's Word together and uh, looking to it. As you find it, you know that when we think about the story of Christmas, there are some common details and people that come to mind, right? When we retell the story of Christmas, we think about people like Mary and Joseph. We think about the angel that appeared in the fields to the shepherds announcing the good news. We think about a star in the sky, wise men from the east. We think about uh, the overcrowded town of Bethlehem and how there was no room uh, for Mary and Joseph. And we think about a smelly stable with animals nearby, right? This was a story that we reenacted as a church this past weekend with a walk through Bethlehem. Many of you were there. It was so much fun to, to creatively engage and retell that story and all those details that come to mind. But I wonder, if we had to tell the story of Christmas, and we do explain what Christmas was all about without mentioning those familiar details, would we be able to do that? Meaning, if we were to explain what Christmas was all about, and we couldn't talk about Mary and Joseph, and we couldn't talk about the angel and the shepherds, and we, we couldn't talk about the star in the sky and the wise men and the, the stable and the smelly animals, if we couldn't mention all those familiar details, what would we say? Would we be able to explain what Christmas was all about? Now certainly those details are true and important. And if we look at the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, that's how they tell the story of what happened when Jesus was born. But again, if we had to zoom out and look at the forest of Christmas rather than the trees, as it were, would we be able to explain what it's about? You see, that's exactly what we find in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 1 this morning, and we see that John tells the Christmas story, but he takes kind of a different angle than the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. John tells the Christmas story, but he doesn't talk about shepherds or angels. He doesn't talk about a manger. He doesn't talk about smelly animals around. He doesn't talk about a star or, or wise men. He doesn't talk about Mary and Joseph. And yet, he's telling us what Christmas is all about. And he says it in verse 14 of chapter 1. Look at it with me. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me again? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you. We can uh, worship you. You've invited us to sing to you, to pray to you, to celebrate who you are. And now, Lord, you've given us this time in your word. And we humbly ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would guide us, that you would open our hearts to what is true. 
God, would you speak to us by your word this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So what's Christmas all about? John 1, 14, the word became flesh. Now, to understand that short phrase and those few words put together and all that they mean, we have to rewind a little bit to the beginning of the Gospel of John. Earlier in chapter 1, look at how John starts his Gospel in verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So John starts by talking about the Word. And you see he's speaking of the Word, and the word, word, appears several times in these short few verses. And he's doing that for a reason. The, the Greek word there is logos. And for the ancient Greeks and philosophers in his day, when they thought about the logos, that was a term that spoke of this invisible unseen reality in the world, this force of reason or wisdom that sort of structured or ordered the universe. It was this big reality force that was behind everything that we see. So John is speaking in a way that the Greeks would listen and understand. Okay, he's doing something here with our understanding about ultimate reality. And he's also speaking to the Jews, because for the Jews who knew the scriptures, when they heard the word word, or thought about the word of God, they of course thought about God's written word, God's spoken word, his revelation, him revealing who he is. They thought about God's, essentially, his power, his character, his presence was all encapsulated in his word, right? You read the Old Testament, you see as he speaks, he acts and reveals who he is. And so John here is writing in a way brilliantly connecting with his Greek audience, his non-Jewish audience, and with the Jews that would be reading this saying, your understanding of ultimate reality and of, of God is slightly incomplete. It's incomplete. Because he goes on to explain this word, this logos, what does he say in verse 1, was in the beginning. In the beginning, what does that remind you of? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, right? Page 1 of the Bible. Page 1, verse 1, sentence 1. In the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth. And so now, in the Gospel of John, he begins by saying the word was in the beginning, points us back to creation. Not only that, he says the Word was with God in relationship with the Father. And he also says what? The Word was God. Okay, so this logos thing we're talking about, this Word that was in the beginning and was with God, was God. We're not talking about something that was created, not talking about something that was less than God. The Word was God. These are some of the, the, the highest claims about Jesus in the whole New Testament. And we know that this is all talking about Jesus because, again, look at verse 14. We already read it. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. 
So this, this word that we're talking about, which I know might be a little bit confusing, the logos that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, that became flesh. We're talking about the eternal Son of God putting on skin and bones, putting on flesh and blood, putting on humanity. As Philippians 2 would say, being made in human likeness. And so here's this incredible truth about what's happening that first Christmas. God in the flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation. The text says that the word became flesh. And it says another phrase right after that. It says, and made his dwelling among us. The verse here more literally is saying, or the word that's translated, made his dwelling among us, more literally means tabernacled among us. Is that a word you hear or use very often? The word tabernacled among us. It's kind of like a camping term. It speaks of a tent, like a little makeshift little house where someone would, would dwell. It wasn't a permanent residence, and it brings us back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament spoke of the tabernacle, which was a place where when the Jews were traveling in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they didn't have their permanent home. They would set up this tent where God would dwell. It was the tabernacle where they would meet with him. His, his presence was localized there. And so do you see what, what John's saying here about Jesus? He's saying just how in the Old Testament God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. His presence was with them in this tent. So now God's presence is with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has moved into the neighborhood, has set up his tent in our camp. He is dwelling with us. So now, friends, at your next dinner party, you have a couple new terms you can throw out there and sound really smart. You can talk about the logos, you can talk about the tabernacle, okay? So just, you know, family parties are coming up. You want to one-up some people, just drop that there, okay? So God came to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty amazing reality. And you might be here this morning and finding that hard to believe. If you find that hard to believe, you're in good company, this is a pretty striking, paradigm-shifting truth that we're talking about this morning. This was hard for people in the first century to get on board with as well. Okay, sometimes we think that like, as modern people, we are enlightened, we really are discerning and evaluate things, and people back in the ancient world, they were really gullible, they were superstitious, I mean, we're a little stitious, but they were superstitious, okay? So they just probably bought into this no problem. You know, like, oh yeah, word became flesh. God uh, taking on humanity, walking among us. Sure, no problem. Yeah, so, sounds reasonable. But that's not at all the case, okay? People in the ancient world were not likely to believe this for a couple different reasons. First, if you were a Jew and you knew the scriptures, you knew about the holiness of God, and the glory of God, and the complete otherness of God. God is the creator. 
So how could the creator step into creation? How could the creator walk among us as a, as a human being? That would make no sense. And if, if you were a non-Jew, you were a Greek, you were living in the Greek world, you probably were steeped in a philosophy connected to Plato, which, not like Play-Doh, but P-L-A-T-O, a philosophy that had a, a strict dualism, that it said essentially the world is divided into two realities. There is the spiritual world, the spirit world, the unseen, uh, invisible, eternal realm, and that's very separate from this fleshly existence, the material world, uh, flesh and blood and, and the things that we can see with our eyes. The spirit world is, is higher, it's more pure, it's, it's better. The, the material world is kind of inherently bad and icky and messy, and we, we don't really want to spend too much time there. We want to escape that into the spirit realm. That's the philosophy of Plato. And so for someone with that mindset, if you were to say, hey, this spirit creator, eternal being took on flesh, they would say, why in the world would that, why would this creator want to do that? Why in the world would this perfect, pure spirit want to put on all this mess and the icky, fleshly stuff? They say, that's, that's ridiculous. And so whether you were a Jew or a Greek, this message would not make sense. It would not be reasonable. It would not be easy to believe. And so friends, hear me. If you were going to make up a story in the first century, if you were to make up a story and get a lot of people to buy into it and start some new, exciting, religious, spiritual movement, this is not the story you would make up. This is not at all where you would start your story. And yet, it's what the scriptures tell us happened. The word became flesh, God in person. It makes us ask the question, why? Like, why did God do this? And we've kind of taken a different course in answering that question each week we've been together for Advent, right? Our series, God in person. Why did he come? Well, he came to save us, to rescue us from sin and death, to die for us. He came to show us how to live, to set an example of how we should honor the Father and live in obedience. And John chapter 1 gives us another way to answer this question, kind of another angle on it in verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. So like earlier, this is pointing us back to the Old Testament. Again, there was a general understanding in the Old Testament that like, if you were to see God or be in the presence of God, you'd, you'd just die. You, just, like, you couldn't hang out there uh, because human beings are sinful. And so to see this, this holy, perfect, awesome creator God, to, to be in his presence would lead to our demise, okay? And so if you see Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision where he essentially is in God's throne room, and he sees just the, the train of his robe, just catches this little glimpse of who God is. And, and what does he say? You remember that? He says, woe is me, I am ruined, 
I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the king. So, so his reaction to being in the presence of God is, woe is me, I'm probably going to die. This is not good. So here it's picking up on this in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. We cannot see the fullness of God's glory and stand in his presence on our own. And then we see also in the text here some reference to Moses. You see in the verses around verse 18, he speaks of Moses. It reminds us of this other place in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 33. Maybe you remember Moses asks God to see his glory. He wants to see the the full glory of God revealed. And what does God say to him? God ultimately says, no. I'm going to proclaim my name. You're going to see my glory pass by, but I'm going to cover you essentially and protect you until I have passed and you can look and you'll see my back. But you can't, you can't look at my face. You can't handle seeing the fullness of who I am and my glory displayed. And so, John 1.18, no one has seen God. But, but, Jesus The only son has what? Verse 18, has made God known. And so now, in Jesus, we can see who God is. We can look and see the glory of God. And just a few verses earlier, it says, we have seen his glory. One commentator put it this way. The phrase, has made him known, means to explain or interpret. The being and nature of God, which cannot be perceived directly by ordinary senses have been adequately presented to us by the incarnation, this God in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ. The life and words of Jesus are more than an announcement. They're an explanation of God's attitude toward humans and of his purpose for them. He has made God known. The word here, made God known, is actually the Greek word exegeomai, which is where we get the English word exegesis. If you've heard the phrase or the term exegesis, that describes what happens when we take a passage of the Bible, or really you could exegete anything, but if you take a passage of the Bible, it means you read it, you study it, you seek to explain it, interpret it, draw out the meaning uh, that is there. What does this mean? What does this mean for our lives? What is this saying? So the process of biblical exegesis is where we look at something, we seek to explain it, interpret it, understand it in its context, and what does it mean for us? And so as I prepare to preach on Sunday, I'm taking a passage and I'm doing exegesis. And as we're uh, doing what we're doing right now, looking at a passage and seeking to understand it and interpret it and apply it, that's the process of biblical exegesis. You're all doing that right now. There's another dinner party word you can throw out there, okay? Okay. And so, what's interesting about this, though, is that it's that word that John uses to explain what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making God the Father known. He's showing us, explaining to us, interpreting for us what God is like. Showing us this is who God is. This is what that means. This is the heart and the character and and the nature of God. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But 
In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Again, so do you see what that text is saying? In the past, here's how God spoke to us. Here's how God revealed himself to us by the prophets, by his written word, in a variety of ways. But now, he's spoken to us by his son. He's shown us who he is by his son, who is the exact representation of his being. And so if we want to know what God is like, we can look at Jesus. If we want to know the heart of God, the character of God, how God operates, we look at Jesus. And Jesus shows us that God is a God of sacrificial love, that God is a God of redeeming grace, God of grace and truth and light, a God of invitation who draws near to us and says, come and follow me. He invites us into his family, into relationship with him. And there's a couple questions we have to answer in light of this. We might hear about this great truth at Christmas, the incarnation, God in the flesh, Jesus born as a baby who would go to live and ultimately die for us. But the incarnation, we might think, okay, so what? What, what difference does that make in my life? What does that mean that I know this truth now? A couple things come to mind. And the first is that this it makes a massive relational difference in how we can relate to God. Think about it. In any meaningful relationship, in order to truly love them, you kind of have to know them. Right? Have you ever met someone who's like gets real chummy with you right away and they throw the L word around really quickly and you're kind of, don't you get kind of suspicious of those people? You know, they're like, I, I love you. We're best friends. Here we go. You're kind of like, you know, you don't really know me. We just met. I'm not really sure we're on that level yet, right? Because genuine love between human beings, at least, requires knowledge, right? If someone just says they love you, but they don't know you, it feels at least a little bit superficial, right? And, and, and we at least ask the question, okay, if they really knew me, would they still be saying that? I mean, really, authentic relationships are best done when, okay, this person has seen me, they know me, good and the bad, and they still are choosing to love me, right? Relationships require knowledge, and so it is with God. In order to walk with God and be in relationship with God, we have to know some things about God. And it's different with God because it's not like God has any sort of imperfections that he's worried about us seeing. It's not that he's worried that we'll find out things about him. There's nothing like that at all with God. But still, he, he wants us to know him, to see what he's like and how to follow him. He's not just calling us blindly to walk with him, some voice that we cannot see. He's, he's shown us, here's my heart. Here's what I'm like. Now come and follow me. I read this story this week of this, this little girl who was in her bed at night, a little bit afraid because a storm was raging outside. Thunder, lightning. She got scared, and so she cried out to her dad who was in the next room, Daddy! And he, he was trying to teach her that she's okay without 
him because when God loves her, God will protect her. God is with her. And so he responded, God loves you and God is with you. She's like, okay, okay. But then a little bit later, the storm was continuing, lightning, thunder. She got scared again, cried out, Daddy. And he gently responded the same thing. Honey, God is with you. God loves you. You're going to be okay. okay. Storm continues. She cries out a third time, Daddy. He gears up the same response, but before he can, she shouts back, I know God loves me. I know God is with me, but right now I want someone with skin on. <laughs> Maybe you can relate with that. I know God loves me, but I, I just need someone with skin on. I think that can help us in our relationship with God because sometimes it can be a little bit hard for us to walk with the Lord. It can be a little bit, feel a bit vague, feel a bit ambiguous. What does it mean to have a relationship with this God that we, we cannot see? And yet we see that, that Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is God who showed up in person and shows us what he's like and shows us his love. And so the application for us is that we, we ought to look to Jesus, to spend time with Jesus in God's word, in prayer. I mean, how silly would it be if God did all of this to make himself known, to show us who he is, and we just looked the other way and didn't take notice and, and seek to understand God more fully and grow in our relationship with God and spend time with him. He's made that option available to us. We ought to draw near to him. So the doctrine of the incarnation, it affects our relationship with God. It's good news for us there. And it also affects how we understand truth. How we understand what is true about the world. Because if you think about it, this claim that God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ that is a wildly different truth claim than other worldviews and other religions will put forward. Because some will say, religion is man's search for God. And so religion is just about us trying to figure it out. We're feeling around in the dark, don't know what's really true. We're just kind of hoping we can put the pieces of the spiritual puzzle together and interpret things in the right way, but really... There's uncertainty and there's fear and do we really know what God is like? But John 1, 18 flips that on its head. It says this is not about you figuring it out and you kind of climbing your way up the mountain to get to God. Hear what Tim Keller, pastor and author, said about this. He said the Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Okay, he's, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 9 here. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And he goes on to say, notice that it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. It has come from the outside. There is light outside of this world. And Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. So do you notice the distinction he's pointing out? He's saying Christmas is not about 
light kind of springing up from humanity, as sometimes we assume it is. It's about this collective spirit of generosity and giving and love and joy that we kind of can conjure up as human beings and humanity and love one another, and that's what Christmas is about. He's saying, no, it's not that light has sprung up from us. It's that this light has dawned upon us. This light from outside of us has come and revealed to us the truth, revealed to us who God is. And so that's good news because it's not just left up to us to put the pieces of the spiritual puzzle together, to hope that we figure it out and just hope that on our own we can make sense of everything. The message of Christmas is that God didn't leave it up to us. He showed up. He spoke. He moved into the neighborhood to save us and to reveal who he is and what it means to be in a relationship with him. God wants to be known. That's what Christmas tells us. Jesus has made God known because he wants to be known. He wants us to walk with him. And friends, our, our world is, it's full of so much uncertainty. Think about how much uncertainty is in your life right now as you think about the future. There are so many things that we don't know. As we think about the present, the present, there are so many things that we don't know. What will come to pass? And then even, again, as we, as we look at our situation now and as we look at news articles and things in the media and politicians, are we always wondering, like, are they really telling us the truth? How do we know that what they're saying is true? Or are they just blowing smoke? How do we know? And we find ourselves, I don't know about you, but I read articles that's like point and then counterpoint, and then point and then counterpoint. And you read a whole bunch of people saying one thing, and then on the other side, a whole bunch of people saying, no, that's completely bogus, and this is actually what's true, right? And so doesn't it leave you in a sense of, who do we believe? How do we know what is actually true? Into this reality that the truth of Christmas speaks. Because here's the deal, that we feel this in the spiritual realm as well, right? As we think about the spiritual realities of life, there are so many opinions about what God is like. Is there a God? What does it mean to relate to God? Different religious perspectives and teachings. I feel like our culture at large has just kind of accepted this blanket reality of uncertainty. Like, no one really knows for sure. We all have our different opinions. It would seem quite arrogant to say that you've found the truth, and so we'll all just kind of throw up our hands. People believe whatever they want. Who knows what's actually real? And it's just left us with this, this anxiety, this low-grade anxiety all the time. When can we really know anything for sure? And again, this isn't just a non-Christian phenomenon. This isn't just something that takes place out there. As Christians, we, we wrestle with this. Can we really know for sure who God is? I want to read you a quote from a, a Christian author. His name's Donald Miller, wrote a book, Blue Like Jazz. Uh, maybe you've read it or are a fan of his. I'm not particularly a big fan of Donald Miller. I have some concerns there. But uh, this, and this quote's going to highlight a little bit of that, okay? I just um, want you to see the way he talks about faith and belief and what we can know. Okay, check it out. He says this. My most recent faith struggle is not one of intellect. I don't really do that anymore. Sooner or later, you just figure out there are some guys who don't believe in God and they can prove he doesn't exist. 
and some other guys who do believe in God, and they can prove he does exist. And the argument stopped being about God a long time ago, and now it's about who is smarter, and honestly, I don't care. I don't believe I'll ever walk away from God for intellectual reasons. Then his last sentence, who knows anything anyway? Who knows anything anyway? Here's this Christian author. So you know what, let's just throw up our hands. What can we really know for sure? Some people believe in God, great. Other people don't believe in God and they can prove it that way. And who really knows anything anyways? Let's just go with our gut and our feelings and whatever. Friends, that, that is not a helpful Christian approach to the world. And I, I, I'm not saying that, hey, as Christians, we're going to have all the answers and everything figured out and all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we're going to get all our questions answered necessarily. I'm not saying there shouldn't be doubt or things that you have to wrestle through about God or about the Bible or about what does it mean to follow him. I'm not saying that those things just shouldn't exist. We have to learn and grow and study and read and process and talk with people. That, that's part of our walk with the Lord. But what, what I am saying is that we are not just left to throw up our hands in uncertainty and say, who knows anything? Anyways, your guess is as good as mine, whatever. Because of John 1.18, Jesus came to make God known. God wants to be known. God wants us to see who he is and what he is like. And we can come to God's word and see this is what God looks like. This is what God expects of me. Jesus has made him known. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, you have not left us in a sea of uncertainty. You've not left us to fend for ourselves and grasp at straws and just hope that we can put things together. You, you showed up. You, you revealed yourself to us. Jesus, you, you came to us and have made God known. So thank you that, that we can look and, and see what you are like. And we can see what you ask of us. We are so grateful, Lord, because we know this is something that we could not have figured out on our own. You have done what we could not do. So we thank you, Jesus, for your love and grace. We celebrate you today. Amen.